weeks we've been here, and I'm looking forward to celebrating 5,200 more, and that would be 100 years. Let's just all commit to being here and celebrating in 100 years. By God's grace, we have been sustained thus far, and I thought that as we came to our one-year anniversary, I think it would be a good reminder to our hearts to just pause to be reminded as a church by God's word what God has called us to, what a local church is supposed to be, how we are to live as those who have been redeemed by Christ. So with that in mind, and with the little time that we have together, please take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If we are going to figure out what God requires of His church then we need to do a theology of the church. We need to figure out what has God demanded of the church. How are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to believe? How are we supposed to act? And when most people do a theology of the church, which in theology is called ecclesiology, ecclesia is our word where we get church. So ecclesiology is the study of the church, a theology of the church. What's the book that most people turn to when they think of ecclesiology? book of Acts, which is profitable in certain cases, and maybe one day we'll study it together. But there is something that is missing from the book of Acts with regard to church, and that is full-grown, thriving, surviving, and spoken to by Jesus Christ himself churches. The book of Acts is filled with embryonic churches, churches that are getting going. We know what to do and what not to do based on some of those things. And the book of Acts is not a prescription of how to do church, how to run a church, how the church should live and act. The book of Acts is a description of the good and the bad and the ugly from church as it began. But it's the embryonic stage of the church. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is really the full-grown stage of the church. Churches that have existed for many years that now are ending and closing because they have forsaken what it is that God has required of them. Revelation is looking at the full-grown churches. And ultimately, Revelation 2 and 3, these letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, are really the lost epistles of Jesus Christ because he is the one that is writing these. He's the one that is speaking these words to be written down to be given to these churches. As John writes down what Jesus is commanding to him, we receive in these two short chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, just over 1,500 words, which is longer than Titus, it's longer than Philemon, it's a little bit shorter than Philippians, not by much. It's shorter than Colossians, and it's shorter than Second Timothy. It's an epistle in and of itself to seven churches in Asia Minor. And in these verses, in these two chapters, as we kind of systematize all of these seven churches together and what God says to each of them, we can see five qualities of a church that God blesses. Very clearly, five qualities as we systematize these seven letters that a church must have if they are to be blessed by God. And as we think about our last year as a church, and as we think about our many years into the future, Lord willing, we must live these truths out if we are to be blessed by God, and if God is to leave our lampstand, as it were, 
and not remove it. So I know we don't have much time, but I want to let Jesus speak to us. What he has already written, what he already spoke many years ago. And I want to read these verses together, these two chapters, as letters that were given to these early churches in Asia Minor, but really many things that apply to us today. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel or messenger or pastor of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel or messenger or pastor of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To the angel or messenger or pastor of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has this sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because, you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And to the angel or messenger or pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, 
I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my slaves astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So behold... I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So, Remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make known, make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that the whole world, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, 
But you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, in the time that we have this morning, we have reason to celebrate, but at the same time, we have reason to be sober-minded. What beautiful, precious promises are found in these verses, and yet what terrifying threats. Promises of condemnation for those that do not live out what you have commanded your church to be. God, give us the special ability to hold in tension the the gladness that we have of celebrating this last year and the holy discontentment and gravity with which we must see the years ahead. Behold, you are coming quickly. We thank you for the promise that is found in these verses and all through the book of Revelation. God, what would you say about Christ's Bible Church? Spirit, guide our time now. We need your help. You wrote these words and were used by God to pen the Bible in such a way that it reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. May his gospel be clearly seen as we move quickly through these chapters. We pray in your name. Amen. Five qualities that probably stood out to you as you were reading along with me. Five qualities, good qualities. Obviously, there's criticism Obviously, there are also promises, and maybe, Lord willing, one day we'll go through these uh, two chapters um, in depth. I love these chapters. I've gone through them before and have found them to be absolutely encouraging, challenging, satisfying to my own soul, and have helped me in my own ecclesiology. So um, we will probably go through them, and I know that will make Keith very happy as we go through them. He's been asking and pleading with me to preach through the book of Revelation, so we will do that soon. Five qualities. We'll go through these quickly for the sake of time. Um, But number one, quality number one that you kind of see as you look throughout all of these churches is if you must be, if you are going to be a church that God blesses, you must persevere in faith. Quality number one is you must persevere in faith. You could also say persevere in faithfulness. Persevere in faith or faithfully persevere to the end. Smyrna in chapter 2 verse 11 In chapter 2, verse 11, there is, or verse 10, there is an encouragement. Do not fear. This is the persecuted church. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested 
You will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful. Overcome. Don't give up. Drop down to verse 13. Pergamum. God knows in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and you didn't deny my faith. Even in the persecution that's coming, you didn't deny. You were faithful. Philadelphia was commended by God as well. Go to chapter 3, verse 10. You have kept the word of my perseverance. And because of that, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which is to come. You were faithful. And God commends that church that is faithful. Even Ephesus, we know Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2. Ephesus is known for the church that left its first love, and that's a bad quality, and it's condemned. But they are encouraged and commended for their perseverance. Verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. You have persevered. You're not giving up. You're not letting go. You're not taking your foot off of the gas pedal. Even Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 19 is commended. And that's a terrible church, but it's commended for persevering in acts of faith and not giving up. If we are to be a church that God would bless and would commend and say, I know this about you and I love that about you, we must be a church that perseveres in faith. There are so many examples in the Bible of people that start well and end terribly. I think of King Asa, great beginning, terrible finish. Think of King Uzziah, great beginning, terrible finish. Ends up dying from leprosy because he is so puffed up that he thinks he can waltz into the temple, offer sacrifice and incense, and he is struck down. He was never allowed to do that as king. Only priests could do that, and yet he did, and he was struck down. Good beginning, terrible end. Demas, good beginning, leaves the faith. So many examples in Scripture of people that start well and just end terribly. Yes, we know the promise in Philippians 1.6 that he who begins the work will be faithful to complete it, but that promise is not void of the next chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that we need to work out our salvation. If we say, I'm not going to do any work, not to earn salvation, but because we have been given grace. If we say, I'm not going to do any work, then he did not begin the good work in us, and thus he will not complete it. So, question for CBC. How do we persevere in faith? Two words, we toil and we labor. These two words are found in these verses in in certain letters to these churches that they toil. I know your toil, verse 2 of chapter 2 in Ephesus. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your labor. We need to do this every day. We need to work every day. Toil, the word is working to the point of exhaustion. It's being exhausted. How many times do we say, oh, I'm exhausted? Sometimes we say that when we wake up from a nap. Oh, I'm exhausted. Like, are we really exhausted? I don't think we've ever really truly been exhausted. Exhaustion in this word picture is running a race and getting to the end, crossing the finish line, and literally not being able to stand up anymore. It's falling down flat because you cannot lift your legs. You cannot stand up anymore. You've worked so hard. You've toiled to the point of exhaustion. Labor, the word is working hard to the point of sweating. We do that during the summer when we're putting up the signs. Amen? We work hard to the point of sweating outside. These words will help us to persevere in the faith. 
working hard, never letting up, never easing off the gas pedal, but always with our head down, pressing on, pushing forward. As John the Baptist says, that violent men take the kingdom of God by force. It is a fight. We must work hard. Do we work this hard? Do we persevere in the faith? We won't know until we see Jesus Christ, if we've made it to the end. So let's renew our strength. Let's renew our conviction. Let's renew our resolve to not grow weary in doing good, but to work hard and persevere in the faith. Number two, a second quality in these epistles, in these letters to these churches, is that we must serve in love. God commends service in love. It's interesting because Thyatira is the one that is commended for this. It's unusual that they would be commended for this, but they are. They are a terrible church, but they are commended not only for love, or not only for service, but also love connected together. They love God and they serve in his name. It's the idea of voluntary service, not under compulsion, but voluntary. It's not forced. It's I want to do this. I want to do this. That's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 19. We must serve in love. And I, I just praise God for the servants that we have at Christ Bible Church. Every morning when I get here, uh, I'm not the first one here. There are other people here way before me that are setting things up, that are doing signs, that are doing uh, the children's ministry. Um, we all need to pitch in to serve afterwards as we've been given a greater assignment for setting up chairs. But we do, and we do it joyfully. If you aren't on the serving list, if you aren't serving in some capacity, whether greeter, whether um, setting up chairs, whether set up and tear down crew, whether sound, if you'd like to do that in any area, if you aren't serving, I would just plead with you and commend to you now. It's been a year. You've seen how it works. You've seen how uh, people have gotten involved. Jump in yourself. Serve. Talk to Tim. Um, talk to myself. Talk to Brian. Talk to somebody that would be able to plug you into that schedule and Help us cultivate a a continued attitude of service. I think if I can just speak personally, that's going to be one of the hardest issues moving into year two. I think, number one, just getting content and satisfied and ingrown and staying here and not going out. And number two, I think we will struggle with continuing a culture of serving. When we're new, it's exciting, right? We show up, hey, this is going to be fun. This is great. It's been a year. It's not fun anymore. Setting up these chairs, we've done this, been there, done that, have the t-shirt, I want out, right? Some people are saying, can I talk to Tim afterwards to get off of the list? You know, let's just trade, let's substitute. Um, God says that, uh, Philippians chapter 2, we must think of others as more important than ourselves. We must serve and be committed to doing that. And we must be on guard in year two of thinking, Why are we still doing this? Why are we still setting things up? Why are we still, shouldn't we have more people to do this? Shouldn't I be done because I've done it for a year? Let's not buy into that attitude. Let's always pitch in. Let's always remember the excitement of that first Sunday. And let that compel us to say, hey, God's been gracious to preserve us this far. We need to serve in love. Number three, we must, if we are to be a church that God would commend and bless, we must suffer In peace, this is Smyrna. Their persecution was horrendous. Verses 8 through 11. The words that are described, tribulation and testing, refer to 
being crushed to the point of being unable to stand. You are going to be knocked over and killed. Jesus says that you are poor, but you're really rich. They weren't poor because they were lazy. Oh, I can't get a job. I'm not looking. I don't really care. They were poor because they had lost their job. They had been fired for being Christians. That's why Jesus says, I see that you're poor. You're really rich in Christ. I know that you've been kicked out of your jobs for knowing Jesus, for preaching the gospel. These people adopted the same position of those in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 who joyfully accepted the seizure of their property, said, I don't care. I have a lasting possession somewhere else. You can take it. And the reality is, as we all know, and we all see it every day, suffering is coming. It is here, and it's coming even more intensely. Whether silly things that I know have big impact, but this whole ordeal in Houston, this last week where the mayor is trying to subpoena every pastor for their sermons so that they can see if they have anything negative to say about homosexuality. Ultimately, I think a lot of the privileges of churches and of pastors will be taken away in this country. Whether it's that, whether it's ISIS, whether it's persecution in the Middle East of believers, whether it's China and what went on there and is still going on to this day, it's coming. Brothers and sisters, it's coming. It's not if we will suffer or be persecuted. It's when we will suffer and be persecuted for our faith. We need to be ready. I read a little book this last week by Legan Duncan called um, Grace Grows Better in Winter, I believe is what it was called. Grace Grows Better in Winter. It was a great little book, but it talks, the main thesis is, do not read this book when you are in suffering. Read this book before you suffer to prepare yourself for suffering. Because when we get into suffering, we struggle to think rationally and biblically and clearly. Very helpful little book, but that's what we need to do as a church. We need to resolve to suffer well. To say, you know what, it's okay. They can take whatever they want. And they can even take my life. How do we do this? How do we suffer in peace the way that Smyrna was commended for suffering in peace? How are we supposed to do this? Two things. It's perspective. And there are two perspectives we must have. Number one, what we have on earth is nothing compared to what we have in heaven. That's why we must store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Nobody can take that away. It's much better there. So it's okay if you take things here. Take my money. Take my job. Take... Um, our right as a church to meet, take away all of these different things, take my life. I have eternal life in heaven. I have temporal, earthly uh, life that will go away here, and I have eternal life in heaven. So we must have the perspective that what we have on earth is nothing compared to what we have in heaven. And secondly, we must have the perspective that they, the persecutors, can take away anything that we have here on earth, but they cannot touch what we have in heaven. Anybody can steal anything that we have, but they can't steal anything that we have in heaven. Whatever we have on this earth is fair game, and we know it will be taken away, and we know ultimately we can't take it with us. But we must have the perspective that, as the Hebrews did in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, oh, we have a better possession. We have a lasting one in heaven. Take my land, take my property, seize it all, take my life. For to die is gain, because I get more of him there. We must suffer in peace. We must suffer well. Number four, if we are to be a church that God would commend and would bless, we must hate sin. Number four, we must hate sin. Ephesus is known 
and commended in verse 6 of chapter 2 for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They hated the sin that they committed. They hated the doctrine that they believed. Some people say, well, I don't, I don't like the idea of hating. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8 says that there is a time to love and there is a time to hate. And if you say, well, but isn't God love? Yes, he is. And since he is perfect love, he is also the perfect opposite. He is perfect hate. We know that. Psalm 5, 5, God says, I hate all who do iniquity. And so if we were to follow in his footsteps, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We must hate sin. And it starts with us. Smyrna did this. Or I'm sorry, Sardis did this in chapter 3, verse 4. Sardis did this. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They have not been involved in immorality. They have not um, partnered with and become uh, grossly dark and destroyed and diseased with soil on their garments, so to speak, with the sin of their culture in their context. They haven't soiled their garment. It starts with us. So often we say, yes, I am a sin hater, and I see sin in you, and you need to get rid of it. And that's good, but that's way down the road. That's why Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. We need to be better at hating our own sin than we do at hating others and their sin, not hating them, but hating their sin. I think this is another reason why suffering comes. Suffering comes to remind us how we are supposed to hate sin. When we suffer, oh, we just want out. We want done. We want out. Get this away. Be finished with this. I hate this. That's the exact way we are supposed to feel about sin. Be done. I hate this. Get this away. I never want to deal with this again. We are supposed to hate sin. Jude, uh, verses 22 and 23 in that short little chapter, says that they hated even the garments of the flesh. They hated sin. They hated even the thought of doing sin. They were repulsed by their own sin. And we must do that. How do we do that? The best way to do that is to develop a love for the holiness of God. Yes, develop a hatred for sin, but the way to do that in the, the fastest, easiest, most simple way to do that is develop a love for the holiness of God. Because as you love God and his holiness, you will hate anything contrary to it. And that's why we study the word of God together, to see God's character and be blown away again by who he is and what he has done. We must hate sin. In fact, God condemns churches in Revelation 2 and 3 for loving sin, for being a part of sin, for not hating sin, and for taking it lightly. We must hate sin. And fifthly and finally, we must rebuke error. We must rebuke error. If we are to be a church that God would commend and bless, we must rebuke error. This is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds. This is the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. And I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles but are not. This is a very bad word in our culture. Tolerance is king. Intolerance is terrible. It's a sin. Oh, but not in God's economy. Intolerance is not a negative word in God's economy. And the reality is, if we're honest, everybody is intolerant of something. It's just a question of, are you right in your intolerance? Discrimination is not a bad word. In fact, 
this intolerance that Ephesus has toward evil men, the exact opposite of that is found in Thyatira, uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Thyatira is condemned for tolerating wicked men. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Philadelphia were intolerant of false teaching. Sardis and Laodicea were indifferent. Eh, Who cares? They can teach what they want. Pergamum was tolerant. Go ahead and teach it to us. And Thyatira was accepting. We'll do what, what it is that you teach us. But all of these churches had some level of tolerance or intolerance to false doctrine. All of them did. We need to be careful at Christ Bible Church. The leadership needs to be careful to protect the doctrine of God's word and not let it stray or wander away. We need to keep it, preserve it, hold it, protect it. And we need to do this in ourselves. Thyatira was accepting of sinful, immoral practices. But how did they get that way? It's because the leadership didn't stand up and say, this is wrong, we cannot be a part of it. Instead, they said, we'll we'll, we'll do it. We'll be a part of it. It's fine with us. John MacArthur says this, if a church's leaders fail in a matter of personal holiness, the church itself is discredited. No matter how orthodox its confession of faith, no matter how strongly we call for truth and righteousness, If our leaders' lives don't back it up, many will reject their teachings as hypocritical or simply conclude that genuine holiness is optional. We need to rebuke error in our teaching, in ourselves, hating the sin that we so often coddle. And we must do that if we are to be blessed and commended by God. We must persevere in faith, serve in love, suffer in peace, hate sin, rebuke error. In these seven letters, there are four general criticisms given, and they're kind of the opposites. And I would say for CBC, we must not be unfaithful. We must not be religiously tolerant. We must not go through the motions or buy into some set of traditionalism. And we must not be worldly. Those are the four criticisms that God gave to these seven churches. Unfaithfulness, religious tolerance, traditionalism, and worldliness. But so what? So what if we keep all of these five qualities and they are ever increasing in our church? So what? What happens? We are blessed. Just listen to the blessings that God gives. There are ten of them in these seven letters. There are ten promised blessings that are given to the church that would do these things. Number one, you have access to the tree of life found in Ephesus. God tells Ephesus, if you overcome, if you live these things out, you will have access to the tree of life. Back in the Garden of Eden, you will have access to the tree of life that will never die. You will never die. You will be with me in paradise. Number two, Smyrna is told that you will have immortality. You will have everlasting life if you overcome. Pergamum, number three, is told that you will get a white stone with a secret name. This is the spiritual equivalent, uh, equivalent to getting a trophy, a trophy stone that the winner of a championship game would get back in the day. And that would be their entrance into the celebration of the games and of the championship feast. We will be given a white stone with a secret name. The white stone lets us into heaven because we are champions and overcomers. The secret name is a name that only you and God know, which means this, and I love this about heaven. It means there's individuality in heaven. We're not just going to get all in heaven and just be robots together. 
We will be individuals. Even in heaven, there will be a name that's precious between you and God, and no one else will know it. God will know you in a specific, unique way that no one else will know. Number five, in, in Pergamum, God says that he will give to the overcomer access to hidden manna. Could be a description of what the feast will look like at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It could be Christ Himself, who is the bread of life. But we will be given access to this new living manna. Number six, we are promised that if we overcome, Christ will associate with us. Everyone might hate Christ and might hate us, but God says, You're on my side and I'm on yours. And that's all that matters. We are family members, we are brothers of Christ Himself with God being our Father. Number seven, we will gain authority from Christ. Laodicea and Thyatira are given this promise that we will gain authority from Christ. He will allow us to rule and reign with him in righteousness. Number eight, Sardis is told that they will be given white garments, white garments of purity, garments that Christ himself wears that will be given to us. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness and we will be able to stand before the Father blameless. Number nine, Christ will be our advocate. Sardis and Philadelphia are told, Christ will be your advocate. No one will be able to take you away. And Philadelphia, number 10, Jesus says to the overcomer, you will receive a new name. In the name of God, the city of God, God's own name. It's a brand It's a stamp of ownership that sets you apart. You are mine, and no one will ever be able to snatch you away from God's hand. So, what are we to do with all of this? Let me just give you five quick things to apply. Number one, scrutinize teachers, scrutinize preachers, scrutinize pastors and teachers according to the scriptures. If we're to rebuke error, we must always be on the lookout for error. This book has no errors. I do. I have errors as I speak. And so what I say, hopefully, Lord willing, the majority of it will be right. But I know since I am fallible and errant through and through, some of what I will say, Lord willing, only some, but some of what I will say will not be right. Scrutinize it. Take it to Scripture. Figure out if these things are so, as even these churches are commended for doing. Number two, Hate sin more than you fear man. Hate sin more than you fear man. If we are to hate sin, we must do that. We must be haters of our own sin, and then we must be able to rebuke in love and grace the sin of those around us. Why don't we tend to confront sin when we see it? It's because we are afraid. The fear of man keeps us from speaking out. Maybe we're afraid of the way that we're going to communicate it. So let's grow in love and in grace. But we must hate sin more than we love our own flesh and more than we fear man. Number three, we must serve often enough that it becomes a habitual pattern of our life. Serve often enough so that when the alarm clock doesn't wake you up at six on a Sunday morning to come serve, you feel like something's missing. When you get to sleep in, oh, what's going on? Oh, I'm not on service duty today. That's so weird because I always am. Do that. May it become so habitual, not only at church on Sundays, but everywhere, that it becomes such a pattern of your life. Be giving. Give of your time. Give of your money. Give of everything that God has given to you. See a need and meet the need. 
serve in love. Number four, work hard and work hard enough that you come to the end of your own strength. Don't ever operate on your own strength. You have to come to the end of yourself, become exhausted, and then see what God can do as you labor and toil and work for him. That's why 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11 say that we must speak according to the power of God and serve according to the power that God gives. Don't serve on your own strength. You will become exhausted and stop. Serve on God's strength, infinite strength, spiritual, supernatural strength, and you will never grow weary. And lastly, number five, to apply this to our next year, Lord willing, with CBC, live in such a way that you are a slave worthy of being commended. Live in such a way that you are a slave worthy of being commended. And not just commended by others. Yes, you want godly people to commend you. But you want to be commended by God. What would God say today about CBC? If you were to write a letter, what would he say? Oh, I know this about you. I see this about, I commend this about you. But I have this against you. And if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand. The survival of our church depends on our adherence to what God has clearly stated. All in the New Testament. What would God say of us today? And what will God say about CBC on the last day? What will he say? We have a lot of work left to do. And I want to work today with that last day in mind. I want to be a slave that is worthy of being commended, that will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want that for myself. I want that for our church as a whole. And I want that for all of the people that attend at Christ Bible Church to hear those words. We have work to do. But by God's grace, those five qualities and more will be ours in abundance because of Jesus and his faithfulness and because of our obedience to what he has clearly said. God, thank you for a celebration. And I pray that as we go from here, you would be pleased to work in us obedience, to adhere to these demands that you make of your church, that you would glorify yourself and your son's sacrifice. Make Christ's Bible Church a place that magnifies God and spreads a passion for his glory so that all people would see and savor Jesus Christ above all things. May we, make shepherd, may we shepherd disciples. May we make those disciples. And may we work until we hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. To you and you alone belong the praise. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.